0: Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's podcast. We are a church from the downtown area of Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we listen to God's word from the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph. We pray that the Lord will draw us to him as we find ourselves in the story of God amidst suffering. You guys can grab a seat. Well, I had the honor of officiating a wedding yesterday that was lovely, and I, the joy of officiating another wedding tomorrow. And so uh, this whole weekend, I've been praying, in all honesty, that my notes don't get mixed up at a wedding. I would be just mortified to teach about Judah and Tamar <laughs> at a wedding. So so I'm praying for strength. I mean, let's be honest. Judah and Tamar probably, if you grew up in the church, was never reenacted on the flannel graph or felt graph uh, on Sunday school, right? This is one of those this is one of those texts that uh, probably didn't make it there. Um, all week in my prayer has just been that uh, I would have the strength, because I messed up my own schedule, but I would have the strength to get through this, that it wouldn't be me, uh, trusting entirely in the sovereignty of God and, and going through that. But as it is wedding season, it is interesting as we walk through, I get to walk very closely with a number of people getting married, which is just, it's a joy. I really, really do enjoy it. It's, it's fun. And at the same time, I find myself in this, in this interesting juxtaposition because as elders, we are walking with some families that are on the precipice or the beginning of potential divorce. And it's interesting, when you look at the, the marriages and you talk to the people that are getting married, there's just, there's, their eyes and their hearts are just filled with hope and excitement. And, and everything's just kind of like this, the possibilities are endless. But then when you talk to and walk with some of these couples, you see just no hope. No hope. And, and And joy seems to be sucked dry and and there seems to be um, little promise and, and no excitement and honestly, I can feel both the the incredible joy and the evil it 's in these situations it 's very palpable it 's interesting how uh, how when walking with people closely, you can start to really feel the the weight of of both of these things and and the magnitude of what 's happening at the beginning of a marriage or what 's potentially going to happen as someone is walking out to the end of their marriage. It makes you really start to wonder when you experience difficult times and, and, and pain. It really does make you start to wonder, what is, what is God doing? Like is, how, how is he at work? And if you've spent any time with the Lord in your life, whether it was being in proximity or, or you've, you've surrendered your life to him, you've had those moments where you're like, what are you doing, God? Where are you? Why is this happening? And these are all really powerful and dangerous questions that I think every one of us is going to wrestle with at one point or another. If you haven't wrestled with this, you will. Because it doesn't, it doesn't take long if you're going to try and live the way that God commands you by the power of the Spirit to walk in this broken world. It does not take long for brokenness to spill over into your life, whether from within or from the outside. And um, so you start to wonder, is, is God just back there kind of cleaning up behind us, trying to, to catch up, but because of the, the magnitude of the brokenness, he's getting a little behind? Or is he just sitting up there with his feet back, kind of watching this flippantly and saying, I'll make it happen. And, and, and I, I hope and I pray over the next few weeks in Genesis as we work through that if I can get out of the way and die to my flesh, that the Holy Spirit in his amazing power can convict and encourage all of us to answer this question that we wrestle with. This idea of, of pain or, or evil or darkness. Like what, 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 is, what is happening? These, this question actually already has an answer for us. In fact, this, the answer is, is, is in one person. The answer is to evil, as is, 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 is clear as day for us, is Jesus. Jesus has, has done that. Jesus has guaranteed some things for us about who God is that we must never move on from. He, he helps us see how to navigate this world. There's, there's a few things, just a few truths that I want to just give you before we even get into Judah and Tamar. A few truths that I think are important for us to be reminded of. I needed to be reminded of them this week. The first one, and, and, and all of these are truths that are ours to know because of Jesus. And the first one is that God is good. Anyone, anyone who rests in the grace of a life surrender to Jesus can say without a doubt that God is good. Because we know at the end of the day, we are not good. And to be invited into a relationship with a good God and to be brought into it through the work of Jesus on the cross the question of whether or not God is good should never be on the table for those of us following Jesus because he has already displayed at the greatest cost to himself how good he is through Jesus. Second truth that is important for us to understand is God, for whatever other reasons he may have beyond the fact that it brings the most glory to him, invited us and still wants us and, and desires that he showed us without question in Jesus, that he desires a deep, loving, personal relationship with us. And there are many reasons beyond it brings him the most glory. But, but within Jesus, we know that without a doubt, he's not some deity floating about just kind of watching the chaos happen. No, he is. He came down into the muck and drew us out. So we can say, without a doubt, God is good and that God wants wants desires a deep, loving, personal relationship with us. Second thing we can say without a doubt is that um, God's rule will never be thwarted. It, although we cannot understand the timing or the means, we can, without a doubt, look back over history, see that no amount of evil or whatever it may seem to look like in the moment, can undo what God has planned. And we see that in Jesus. All the way back to the promises of Genesis 3.15, we know that God has worked out and nothing could stop his plan of redemption through Jesus. We know that without a doubt. He had a plan in place to accomplish his purposes of redeeming us through the Messiah. He said this, before he even went to the consequences of the sin. So in Jesus, we know that God is good. In Jesus, we know that God wants relationship with us. In Jesus, we know that he is always, always going to accomplish that which he has set out to do. And then we also know that God is always at work, which means he is accomplishing his redemptive purposes in me and his people and ultimately all things for good and his ultimate glory. No suffering is wasted because God is always sovereign, regardless of what it may seem to look like to us in the moment. I know many of us are going to look at something evil or painful or atrocious, and the only thing that's going to get us through these darkest days is to remember that no matter what we are experiencing, or not liking about the moment, even in the moments that seem to take years, we can without a doubt know that God is good, he is in control, and no evil will stop him from accomplishing his redemptive work in me and his people for his good and his glory. These are truths that we must rest in as a church. Many brilliant theologians have written theologies around these Truths and the the best encouragement I can give you is to stay as close as you can to the person of Jesus in all of these things. You, we, we will come to, inevitably, we will come to things where, we will, where our confidence will be shaken. We will come to things where we're going, I don't know how you can do this, God. I don't understand. Why? Those are, those are going to be natural wrestlings. And I don't want to just give you this one verse, and then we'll jump into Judah and Tamar. It says in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, God speaking. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What, what irks us the most is this idea that we can't entirely understand everything that God is doing. But that's what makes him God and us not. And so we have to wrestle and understand that there are going to be moments, and God is revealing things to us. He has showed us many things, and he will continue to reveal things to us. But we will come to the end of what we can handle or understand or know about a God who created everything. And that's just something that actually uh, brings immense peace. To me, Real quickly, we should get a basic understanding of what God being sovereign means, because ultimately what we're going to see in the next few weeks of, Ge- of Genesis is, is you see God's sovereignty at work through all kinds of different circumstances that, that don't, on paper, make sense to us. Uh, basically, uh, it means God is all-powerful, in control, ultimate authority, and nothing or anyone can or ever will stop him from doing his will in his timing for his glory. That means no matter what it may seem to look like, we must always remember that God is sovereign. He's in control. He is our authority. That is what sovereign means for the best part. Okay, with that, let's get into today's text. <laughs> for those of you that don't know, Judah and, and Tamar is, is stuck in the middle of what seems to be the story about Joseph. But if we remember, if we, at the very beginning of this section, this chapter says, the genealogies of Jacob. Joseph just happens to be the, f- the, the biggest and the largest chunk of patriarch that's talked about in Genesis. But, but Judah and Tamar are, are lumped right in the middle of this. I will admit, I will confess, I forgot about Judah and Tamar when I was excited about going to Joseph. So here we are. Thank you, Lord, for that. Um, but it's, again, we must also remember to not lose sight of the fact that God is weaving his story through history within the broken people to save a broken people. It's important for us to not zoom too far in on one chapter because if you zoom too far in on any one chapter of your own life, of the scripture, you may lose the understanding of what God is doing in his story. So we must force ourselves to zoom out, to look at what God is doing. Um, again, the same is true of our own lives. Many of us zoom in on our own life and that's where that anger and that wrestling with God comes from because we're, we're, we're so narrowly focused. We're so stuck in the moment and not seeing God in his story and what he's doing and looking for our place in his story. And that's what he's doing. So in this one, the the wheels come off very quickly. If you've read Genesis 38, we're not going to read all 30 verses of it. I'm going to kind of do the best I can at um, concisely saying a few things here. What happens is we know just after... Uh, Judah and the brothers decide to sell Joseph off to slavery. Judah decides to leave about 15 miles north of his family, which is, which is an interesting thing. The conjecture would say that Judah can't handle his his, his guilt maybe, and he's running from stuff that, that's not in the text. We just know he leaves and then goes and marries a Canaanite woman who remains unnamed. Uh, all we get is her father's name is Shua. We know that she's in this specific area, and, and he there marries this Canaanite woman, which is interesting because Isaac and, and Jacob and everyone was talking about originally before this, how important it was to not marry a Canaanite woman. So it seems like, seems like Judah's doing this in, in, a, in a departure from, from the family of God, in a departure from submission to what God would want. He marries this Canaanite girl uh, again, and then he has three sons with her. And so we see, okay, so here's Judah. He has these three sons. We, we will jump back into Joseph's life and where it's at next week. But he, at this point, over this time, some 13-ish years, maybe even 20 years, by the time that, that they start interacting with uh, Joseph again, we know that um, lots of time has, ha- has passed. But most likely, all of this stuff that we read about here happened around this time. And so here's Judah now with three sons. He's got Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Shelah, Shil- 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 sorry. Um, I'm saying that probably wrong, but that's okay. Um, and what we get here in, in verse 7 kind of on is that uh, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And that's, that's all we hear about Ur. And it's one of those things where... Um, We don't know what it was that he did. We don't know how he died, but just that we are told that he was evil and that God has put him to death. In fact, there's no details provided here. But we do know when this motif appears in Genesis, it happened in Genesis 6 and a few other places, it describes something, some evil deserving of divine judgment. And so Ur is dead. But before Ur dies, he is married to this woman, Tamar. And Tamar and him are married, and, and and then Ur dies. And so then now that sets up this next section. I'm just going to read it real quickly. It says this. It says, um, then So he put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, his, his middle son, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. Okay, pause real quickly. We have to remember culturally what's happening here. Uh, this is, a, this is a, a law that kind of played out culturally, and, and later on, Uh, Deuteronomy actually talks about this law being added in here. Again, not because this is the best way it should be done, but because God, again, is working within the culture. We have talked extensively about this. I would encourage you to go back to listen to the beginning of this as we talked about getting the story of God. But part of the way that God guaranteed to care for widows was through the, f- the family, through the patriarch. And and Jacob being the, the primary patriarch, then Judah would be the patriarch of his family. And so Judah now has to take care of Tamar because Tamar would have been brought into Judah's household in this place. And so what's happening here is Ur, the firstborn, and we, we established this. Remember, the firstborn gets the, the greatest inheritance. Well, he's gone. He's, he's dead because of evilness. And so now Onan is to perform what is called like a, a, a leverite, or it's a Latin word, kind of law that basically says that he is, as the brother-in-law, to, is to give his sister-in-law a child. And that's how this is supposed to happen. And what that child then would do, if it was a male son, would then take Ur's inheritance, which would then safeguard Tamar's life. widow had little to no protection outside of the family, the way that this culture worked. And so, so Judas does what he's supposed to do as the head patriarch of this family, says, Onan, this is on you. You're supposed to do this. Well, Onan, um, it doesn't go well here, too, in just case you guys were wondering. Onan decides to, instead of telling his dad, no, I don't want to do this, which then they had a later on a law that came that if he said he didn't want to do this, that she could in public take off her shoe and slap him across the face and spit in him. And it was a very huge like, shaming thing that, that some would say was almost greater than any other shame out there because he wasn't going to perform this right to safeguard this widow. But Judah, instead of re- re- dealing with this shame, he, he says, yeah, okay, cool. I'll do that. But we know that Judah, or not Judah, sorry, Onan has every desire to have sexual relations with Tamar and no desire for her to have a blessing of a child because he engages in sex, and verse 9 tells us he does it over and over and over again, but every time he continues to spill his semen on the ground in hopes to make sure that she does not have a child. So here we see Onan taking advantage of what is supposed to be happening, maybe even, dare I say, going along with what's supposed to happen, but then hiding from it and not doing what what God or, or his father in this moment had asked him to do. And so he does this over and over and over again, and, and it wouldn't be hard to believe that the reason why Onan isn't doing this is because he says he wouldn't. It wouldn't have been his son, meaning Onan's in place to get the firstborn inheritance with Ur out of the way. So, so think about the think about the ugliness of the situation. Onan's so concerned about his inheritance that he's going to take advantage of his of his widowed sister-in-law, only to never really fulfill that. Well, was intended to happen here, so he does this, and God sees it as wicked, and Onan is killed. Again, we don't know how. We just know that he's dead. Now here's here's Tamar, who has been married to a wicked man who has been uh, did not give her a child. Now she's been given to her brother-in-law to be bearing a child so that she can have the blessing of a child. Now, now, something to remember, Tamar doesn't have a lot of safeguard in this moment if the family she's in isn't caring for her, and if she doesn't have a child to take any of this inheritance. And so now we see this is starting to become even more and more difficult. So what he did, what Onan did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. This is verse 10 and he put him to death also. So then Judah devises this plan, and we see it here. It says in verse 11, it says, Judah said to Tamar that, um, and Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, we, we see what's happening here. Judah's at risk of being err. He's at risk of being a, a, a uh, descendantless father, like no no one to follow him, like like Ur is, and so he says, "Hang on, my youngest son is not of age to marry yet. So Tamar, you just wait, and then when he raises up, then you will have him to fulfill the 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 law that's required, so that you can have these things." And uh, Judah, what's interesting is. This is the dysfunction within their family. Judah doesn't think that there's anything wrong with his sons. He thinks there's something about Tamar that's causing this. Like, I mean, Judah, who spent his life knowing that his dad cared about someone more than him as a brother, Judah who was so angry about the way he was treated with inappropriately and and this complete like giving of love to one brother, but not to the rest of them. Judah doesn't even want to care for Tamar. He's more afraid of losing his son than he is of following through what is expected of him with Tamar. And so Judah, he devises his plan. He says, remain a widow in your father's house. Now, there's not a lot of scripture that talks about someone who's dying, whose husband dies going back to their father's house. We only see that for a priest in the Levitical law. And so it would seem like what Judah is doing is he's kind of skirting his responsibility to care for Tamar. But he does it only in a way where he basically says, look, but you're still, in essence, you're still betrothed to to Shalem, my youngest son. So now Tamar would have to then go to her father's house wear widowed garb until Shalem is ready. So she must grieve the whole time and not experience any opportunity for any other marriage because she's betrothed, she's promised to another child of Judah. But she has to now live at her father's house where her father's going to be feeding her and taking care of her. And Judah's not having to do any of those things. So Judah concocts his plan, says in verse 12, in the course of time, um, sorry, concocts his plan to, to send her off. And we know, Judah doesn't say this, but we know we're, we're brought into this, that he's, he's fearful that something will happen. So it seems like Judah is just doing, let's, let's, let's call it what we think it is. He's just running from his problems again. Just kind of hiding from him. It's hard. Let's just go. Let's get out of here. So then Judah's wife, the Shua's daughter, we don't know her name, she dies. And and Judah was comforted. So he mourned over time. And then he went to go up to Timnah to the sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. Okay. So this is most likely some form of a festival. So, so Shua's daughter has passed. Judah's wife has passed. He spends the time grieving and mourning. He gets comforted. And now it's this time to go to this festival. And this festival is a, is a road trip away. It's Sheep Sears Festival. It's a big deal. And lots of people are going. There would have been a lot of uh, pagan cult prostitute in this time around these things for fertility and, and to hope that you would have good crop. And so all of those things would have been happening at this festival in this way. And, and we don't know who, but someone tells Tamar, hey, your, your, your father-in-law is headed this way. Your father-in-law is going this way. And so, so she says, okay, so he's headed up this way. So when Tamar was told the father-in-law is going up to Timnah to the shear the sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anam, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was growing up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So we don't know how much time has passed here, but she knows that she should have been given to marriage. Shelah was, was of age. He was in the spot. He hasn't done it. And, and so Tamar, now, now hear this. Tamar believes or has seen enough in Judah to think that this would actually work. It's important for us to understand that. Judah, as her father-in-law, either lived or frequented enough with prostitution that she actually believed that this was a plan that would work to even do this. So she goes and sets herself up on this road that, that is kind of on the way to this thing. So on the road, she wouldn't have been near a temple, so most likely she would have been seen as just a prostitute. We see cult prostitute, and there's a big difference between those two and how they were but most likely, Judah wouldn't have wanted to take part in a cult prostitute because they would have been worshiping other gods. But apparently, he was okay with a prostitute on the side of a road. Tamar covers herself. Lots of theologians try to bring all sorts of understanding of what she's looking like, how she's coming out. Most of what we know is that she's just trying to conceal her face from Judah. Tamar's plan works. <laughs> doesn't take long. Judah sees her and... We, we get no, no dialogue, no like, hey, it's kind of hot out here, or the weather. <laughs> None of that stuff. He just, he just kind of goes for it. He walks up to her and says, um, for he, uh, he walks up to her and saw her when he saw her. He thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered face. Now, again, that, we don't know, but he, he does this. So he turns to her at the roadside and says, come, let me come into you. Let me have sex with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law and tamar doesn't doesn't gawk doesn't say do you want to talk about the weather you want to buy me dinner first none of those conversations tamar just goes directly into it. she says what will you give me what will you give me to, as payment for this you see me as a prostitute well then you have to pay for this and then judah says i'll, I'll give you a young goat Which, what is it with this family and goats Have you guys thought about that? Like over and over again, Jacob deceives his father with goat skin. They deceive Jacob. The sons deceive Jacob with the robe and blood of the goat. And here now Judah is saying, okay, I'll give you a young goat, which was actually a really high fare, a really expensive fare for prostitution in this time. And he's like, I'll give you one. And she says, well, how do I know? How do I know that you'll give me one? There's not a goat with you. And what's interesting is Hira, the Adulamite, has to be with Judah in this conversation. They're, they they we are told that they're going there together. And he says, "Well, I—I I, I mean, I don't know." And she's like, "Well, what do you—what do you want?" And he's like, "She's like, well, give me your cord, and your signet, and your—and your—and your staff. These are all identifiers." Not worth a lot of value to really anyone other than the one with which they identify, but they were like, let me see, let me have your driver's license, your passport, and just as a good measure, can I have a bill that shows that you live at a certain address? Like, that's what she's basically trying to do. She's trying to say, I want to know who you are, and this, is I know, is valuable enough to you that you'll want this back, so then I will get this goat, should we do what you want to do with me. This is what she does. Now, Tamar wants to have a child. Please don't look at this story and think that this is prescriptive. Like, ah, if you don't get what you want, just go take it. Like, that's not, I don't think that's the lesson that we're meant to have here. The blessing and livelihood that came from having a child was so significant. So significant. She is trying to hold Judah accountable to what he should be already doing for her. Timur does what she has to do to survive. The the culture with which they live in, God is working out his story. He had safeguards for widows, and Judah was not following those. God had expectations on how the least were to be treated by the people of God. So anytime the people of God abdicate or remove themselves from this process, guys, it puts people in very vulnerable spots where they're left between a bad decision and a really bad decision. And this is important. Let me just step out for a second. This is just a really important thing for us to understand. When we start looking at the people around us that are making some really bad decisions, often, a lot of times, why someone will make the decisions they make isn't because they just want to make bad decisions, but they were not given the opportunity or the space with which to have better decisions. And so it's really easy for us to go, oh, that that terrible prostitute, how dare she? I've spent enough time in the Philippines with women that are doing that very thing, and every one of their stories is very similar. I'm doing this to take care of a child that has no hope or means if I don't do this. So before we put on our massive judgment heart as maybe someone that's an upper middle class, has both their parents, hasn't experienced abuse, has a home over their head, let's not just assume that everyone's making bad decisions because that's just what they do. They might be left between a really bad and a bad. And this is what Tamar's doing. She's offering herself to her father-in-law, while hiding who she is, so that she can have the safeguard of inheritance and life and livelihood, something that she would not have had if she did not do something. And for us, it's weird because it's like, well, why didn't she just marry someone else that wouldn't have been allowed, because she was betrothed to, to the family of Judah. So then, they've come to their agreement the goat (laughs) Um, and they went and had sex and we are told in the story that she is she is conceived by him in that moment and then she arose went away found somewhere safe to take off what she was wearing and put back on her widow veils and garments and and Judah left, and and here's here's a part of the story that I just want to I want to pause again and step out of, and this is a part that just, sorry, just wrecks me. Judah does this whole thing without ever seeing her face. How this woman lived in her house with him and her son, his son. This woman was in close proximity to his wife to everyone and judah's able to do this without even recognizing or seeing her and one would argue like well yeah she was she was veiled and okay maybe but i want to i want to just again stop and pause for a moment i think this is the reality of almost all sexual sin whether it's porn or affairs or sex before marriage, whatever it is. This is the reality. that The truth is, or prostitution, this shows us how depraved it can be where an individual can do grotesque things to someone else, all the while never seeing them. Never seeing their face. Church, this is, this is why this is such an atrocity. The, the people with which that are being taken advantage of, whether it's in pornography or anything else, they bear the imago Dei, the image of God. They are someone's daughter or someone's son. They are potentially our future brother or sister in Christ. They are broken, hurt, maybe deeply abused. And yet many of us, many people, continue to work and go through this stuff being okay, not seeing the face of the person with which we are enslaving. And here's Judah doing it to his daughter-in-law. Verse 20 goes on, and Judah sends the young goat by his friend Hira. So the guy that was there that would have seen her on the road and Recognized her at least in her veil and where he was at. And so he goes to try and find her and can't find her anywhere. Asks around, like, hey, where's the, he uses the word cult prostitute again. We don't, the, the, the Hebrew can be really close to meaning either. Um, it's difficult to understand exactly, but most likely, most theologians believe that she wasn't set up as a cult prostitute. Um, this could be potentially Hera's way of trying to safeguard Judah's reputation in some way because cult prostitution was, not look down as much as prostitution. <laughs> um, and they can't, they can't find her. And so Judah, out of fear of being ridiculed, out of fear of being the laughing stock, says, stop looking. She can just have my staff and the cord and, and the ring. She can have them all because I don't, I don't want people to know that I was bested by a prostitute. So Judah does what he has done all along, runs from it, someone else's problem. Get rid of Joseph. Just sell him off. Good. Don't have to think about him anymore. Prostitute. Get rid of him. Oh, get rid of. Him. That's fine. Tamar. Go to your father's house. Like he just continually pushes his problems away. Church, there's another really profound and big lesson for us to learn here. We talked about this two weeks ago. Sin does not just go away. The issues and the darkness with which we tend to play with or try to train, like I was talking about, just grows in strength. Don't just try and run from your problems. (laughs) You may turn, repent of them, and run to the Lord, but don't just bury them and hope they go away. And some scholars believe that because of this, like Judah's even kind of hoping that that his his servant, Hira, would be like his buddy. Hira would be like, well, Judah did his best part to take care of this. So you know what? Good job, Judah. And so he leaves the situation. Well, then three months later, perfect timing, right? Three months later, Judah... (laughs) Judah was told, so this is how we know that Tamar is still under the care, still promised to Judah's children, because Judah wouldn't have been told if she was out of this. It wouldn't have mattered, because she's not in his household. So Judah's told by, by we don't know who, <laughs> maybe the same person that told Tamar, we, we don't know, but Judah's told that, that this is her, um, that her daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality, and Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And so, again, okay, this is just something to note. The the law that comes after this that is set in place for an affair would have been stoning, but it would have been stoning both the the pregnant woman and the perpetrator. I'm betting Judah doesn't want that to happen, okay? So most likely, and and really the fact that Judah has this, this is the only spot in the Old Testament that we see that one individual has the power to make this declaration, I think it's more of a a statement of, like, passion. She cheated against my son-in-law or my son. Like, how dare she? And, and so he says, burn her. Okay. So she's bringing her out. I don't know if they were going to burn her or what would happen here. And as she's being brought out, she sends word to her father-in-law. Now, now look at this. She could have been screaming and said, this is who did it and showed everyone. But somehow she privately sends word to her father-in-law with the three items that happened to be his. And says, Hey, this is, this is who did this to me. She doesn't say, Hey, I, I dressed up like a prostitute. And I, she just leaves that out, okay? And she's like, this is the person that I, am, that I am, that is the father to those, or to at this point, the, she doesn't know she has twins, but to those that are in my belly. And so, um, please identify these, who these are. Look at this. Doesn't, she doesn't say, Judah, these are yours. <laughs> please identify who these are. He sees them. And as he... As it approaches, Judah identifies them and says, oh my goodness, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shalah. And he did not know her again. And that's kind of how that story ends, which I'll be honest, like, leaves me wanting a little bit more. I mean, where's, the, where's the consequence for Judah? Like he doesn't, well, wait, 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 well, hold on a second. This is your daughter-in-law. There's a pretty big law written about that later on too, <laughs> to not do. He seemingly identifies that she's doing more right than him or she is operating more right than he is, um, depending upon how this Hebrew phrase is understood. Which in essence is acknowledging that he failed her by saying I didn't give her to my son like I was supposed to. So so maybe this is his moment of turning. I mean, we, we do pick up with Judah later on and he does posture himself a little bit better than all we've seen so far in his life. But she's not killed. Judah never sleeps with her again, and she has twins. That's where it goes on in verse 37, or verse 27. When the time of labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand. (laughs) Okay, this is crazy. One puts out a hand, and the midwife, like, just having this scarlet thread, like, tied it on real quick, and then the hand goes back in, um, and said, this one came out first, but as she drew back in, or as he drew back his hand, behold, the other brother came out. And she said, oh my goodness, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name shall, was called Perez, which literally means to break through. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. And so here we see this moment. Now we we see, looking back in this story, and that's important for us, we see what God is doing now. Because we know, if you look at the genealogies, that Perez is, is a part of the lineage of the Messiah, of Jesus. What's interesting is, Judah is, is selling off his brother because of the favoritism that his dad had shown him, because he didn't want to lose his birthright and get his inheritance, all the while trying to safeguard his children's inheritance so that they can get where it is. And then this, this situation happens, and it's not the oldest, Zerah, but Perez, by which the lineage and the blessing will come through. That didn't go exactly how I think Judah expected it to go. And here we see God's promise breaks through the sinfulness of man so that he can keep his promise, which is interesting if you look at it this way, when we see Jesus in the Emmanuel, God with us, we recognize that God is breaking through brokenness, bringing himself here, and he's, he's It's bringing the culmination of breaking through everything to bring us back to him, to bring us back into right relationship with him through Jesus. And so here in this crazy chapter, in this crazy thing, we can see that God's will was manifest. (laughs) That it happened. That God's will, God's sovereignty as it worked. One scholar says it this way. The chapter shows that the purposes of God for Jacob's family and from a historical perspective for the nation of Israel, overcame human and optics obstacles, the selfishness of evil sons, the ignorance and sensuality of an old man, and the disgraceful actions of a desperate widow to carry on a royal legacy by the child Perez, God's sovereignty in action. Now, now hear me on this. This is important. I'm pretty sure if you asked any of those people in this story, hey, is God's sovereignty at work, maybe Tamar would say, well, look, I, I had a child. So God did something here. That they knew that the child was a blessing from God, so, so they would have given God the credit there. But most likely through this whole time, they're asking the same question that I started with that all of us ask. What is happening? God, are you, are you paying attention? These are supposed to be your people. This is supposed to be your story. And this is how it's going to be written? Everything in this story seems to be just so messed up. Even the ending is like, wait, what? If this is this is it? And oh okay. Get God's redemptive purposes, his plans and timing have never have never, are never and will never be thwarted. No matter what it may feel or look like in the moment with which you are watching. Guys, this is so important for us to understand. I'm gonna try and and get this a little bit personal for us here in section. Is in your own lives, are you willing? Are you willing to see the brokenness in your life, either in the past or the brokenness that you're going through right now in this moment, even if this moment is years on end? As the means by which God is going to accomplish to bring you to a spot of thriving as a part of His story. Are are we willing to acknowledge that? And here's why I ask that question because if we're not, your issue isn't the issues, your issue is God and doubting His power and His ability to bring about redemption. Can you trust Him to work it for good and for His glory? I get it, this is this is a hard one to stomach. Like, this is this is difficult. There's like many of you, if not all of you, have experienced deep, deep atrocities in your life. Deep grief. Pain that, that I wouldn't wish on anyone. But also I'd be willing to bet that if you're honest, many of you have seen God's redemption in even the most painful of situations. And some of you right now, you're clinging on to what seems like a thread, hoping that he will bring about redemption in a broken situation. Do you trust that God is in control? All we see in this story, all I can see in this story, is everyone doing everything wrong. Like, there's, there's not anywhere it's like, oh, I'm so proud of what they did. Like, I'm not going to teach my kids, like, hey, guys, be just like this. No, that's not, that's not the lesson here. What we can't help but see is God is, in spite of His broken people, still bringing broken people to Himself. God is still at work. Look, if, if Genesis thirty-eight just goes away, we don't get any of it. Let's say it just disappears. I mean, we would see this name Perez show up later on, but we're like, wait, who is this from? Like the sons? What? Like it, what? And yet we 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 have no Perez Perez born of Tamar, seen in, in Matthew in the lineage of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. God is at work. He's getting to the core of the issue that we all have. It's not just that we still sin. It's that we still want sin. He's he's not just driving out the the. The sinfulness in us, he is doing that, but he's also driving out the desire of our sinfulness because he wants us to see that when we give ourselves to this, there's a better way in him. And until he finalizes it, completes it, and resurrects us into the new bodies where we will no longer want sin and, and at the same time only want him, until then he is breaking us down to bring about his people redeemed, that not only desire him at the deepest core, but have no desire for the sinfulness that we so often give ourselves. He's not a problem solver. He's a sovereign God accomplishing his redemptive plans always. God's still got you. Maybe that's all you need to hear today. God has still got you. His will will not be thwarted. You might say things like, yeah, but, but look, at, look at all this in my life. And I say, yes, but look at what he's done in his story. Thousands of years of many people over and over going, what are you doing, God? And we, at this point in history, get to look back and go, oh, that's what you were doing. <laughs> look at that. God's purposes and plans will not be thwarted. This is either a statement of immense comfort for some or one of deep terror, depending upon how we are living our life or better yet, who we are living our life for. You are either deeply comforted by the fact that God's will will be accomplished or you are very afraid that it might be accomplished. And the only way that you find that comfort, like I said at the beginning, is in Jesus. God is using broken people to save broken people. And guys, he's doing it perfectly. Despite what we see, despite what we may think, despite our circumstances. Like we said from the very beginning of this, we will thrive when we find that this story is about God and we find our spot where he is going to use us as a part of his story. Stop making this story about us. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? I've never, and I'll end here, I'm sorry, hold on. It's interesting to me that I've never really sat with anyone, and maybe it happens, and maybe you're like, I'm the exception, cool, tell me afterwards. But I've never really sat with anyone in pastoral ministry where they're like, and I sit down, like, how's life? Like, oh man, my marriage is thriving, and, and um, my kids are amazing. They're not even annoying me. I'm, my job is incredible. I keep getting promotions, left over, hand over fist. Like, everything is just perfect in my life. I'm like, wow, this has never happened. Wow. And then they go, I just don't get what God is doing. No one ever says that when they, when it's seemingly meeting their expectations. Why? Because we've made God about us instead of us being about him. When our expectations of what we believe God should be doing aren't met, then we question his authority. When everything's seemingly meeting whatever our expectations are, it's like, okay, God, you're good. Just stay in your place. Stay in your role. Don't mess this up. That should be a clue to us that the issue isn't the sovereignty of God. It's our own hearts. And the solution isn't our circumstances. The solution is Jesus. So take heart, church. You will come through hard days. God is not wasting your suffering. The best line of all of this story of Joseph is what you had meant for evil, God intended for good do you believe that he can take your scenarios your broken past your broken presence and your broken future and bring about a redemptive plan that you had no idea he was doing all along but we'll see him working it out in his story for his glory and his good band's gonna come up and we're gonna sing we won't take communion right away we'll go do it in a second actually at the very end of service let me pray for us Father thank you so much for the reminder for me, this last couple of weeks as I've studied this, just how powerful, how good, and how um, in control you are. Father, I confess uh, also often as I'm walking with people, um, including myself, just how easily and how quick it is for me to shake my fist at you, to get angry, to uh, question your motives or question your process or question your timing. God, forgive me for that. Forgive me for trying to make you a more palatable God for me. Forgive me for assuming that I could know everything and know it perfectly and therefore am in perfect understanding of what you're doing, God. That is um, just a position of pride. So God, I I rest in knowing that your ways are not ours. Your thoughts are not ours. And in that very statement that, that both your ways and your thoughts are higher than ours. And so God, I pray that as a church we would rest in you knowing that you are accomplishing your good no matter how bad it seems to look and for how long, you are still at work. Your plan is still being accomplished. Your redemption is still happening. And it won't be done. It won't stop until you are done at the timing with which you have decided. And Lord, we ask if it's your will, come soon. Jesus back. We want to experience you where we don't only have the choice now to choose to do good for you, but we actually have no desire to do evil, Lord. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org or on the Church Center app. We encourage you not to neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.